Welcome to Never Before. I'm your host, Janet Mock. Have you ever met someone whose laugh feels like a warm hug? Whose jokes leave you reaching for tissues? Whose confidence is just pure goals? That's how I feel about my guest, Gabourey Sidibe. Gabby has quite the story, truly tailor-made for Hollywood. While in college, Gabby skipped school on a whim one day and auditioned for a film based on the novel Push by Sapphire. The director, Lee Daniels, instantly fell for Gabby, like, who doesn't? And cast her in her first acting role as the lead in Precious. Upon release in 2009, the film and cast, which included Monique, Paula Patton, and Mariah Carey, and earned Gabby a Best Actress Oscar nomination. Nothing like that ever happened to me when I was playing hooky. But Gabby is just that special. She has since starred in American Horror Story and, of course, plays blonde Becky in the TV mega-hit Empire. Now, Gabby has a new book, This Is Just My Face, Try Not To Stare, a memoir that details her journey from Harlem to Hollywood. I speak with Gabby about carving out her own space and culture, her literal body of work, and the complicated dynamics of becoming your family's sole breadwinner. Woof, money. I just finished your book on my way here to interview you. And so it's like, it's, it's just weird exchange. <laughs> in the flesh. Like, I know so much about you now. Yeah. And I know nothing of you. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? Who are you? How has the experience been? I know it's so new um, for you to have this out there in the world. Ooh, it's so strange. People keep telling me it's a really quick read, which... Strangely, it just it offends me. I wrote it for three years. I mean, it took about, it took like 10 months to get the first 100 pages down. You know, it's so strange that I was in a, I was in an elevator yesterday at uh, some magazine building and someone got in the elevator and was like, oh, I love your book. And I was like, who sent you? Like, <laughs> what do you know? What do you know? <laughs> like, you know, it's very strange getting used to the fact that people know my story or at least a portion of my story, what I allowed them to know through this book. And I'm still getting used to it. As someone who writes memoir, I understand intimately the process of like, these are the parts of my life that I'm comfortable with sharing with you. Right. So like the editorializing your life, the selecting what what pieces were you, I guess, kind of OK with sharing and what pieces were you kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to put this in yet. I was not intending on writing a memoir at all. I thought it would just be like a collection of funny stories. I really I was like, oh, I'm going to write about like, you know, being a fat actress and I'm going to write about what it what's it like to be nominated for an Oscar and then to lose that Oscar. The first story I wrote is the first chapter about overhearing the want for me to be on the cover of Vogue mm. um, in my fat black body, but uh, never actually being on the cover of Vogue. That was such uh, riveting, complicated story. Immediately, immediately I thought of the term massage noir which is a term that a black feminist scholar named Moya Bailey came up with. And it's this complicatedness around the kind of misogyny that black women specifically face, even within our own people. And so thinking about you being this young woman, first role, coming into like a safe, intimate space of celebration, and then hearing people labeling you 
in this way, but in a celebratory way. Like, we're going to put this fat black bitch on the cover of Vogue. Like, yeah. it's like, wait, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. <laughs> it's very complicated, you know, because I say that, you know, I was, I was always been round and, and too brown. You mm. know, I've always been black and fat and, you know, as a as a child, and that wasn't cool in elementary school, and it wasn't cool in junior high, and it wasn't cool in high school. But when I graduated from high school, it was kind of it was all right. It mm-hmm. was whatever. You know, people. Didn't it was say whatever things. because of your your own. Not because no, I mean like I mean in the world, okay. like nobody people were too polite to say anything about mm-hmm. my body. You, everybody's a grown up kind of. We're mm-hmm. all eighteen. We're in college. Whatever. Nobody's gonna say in real life. Nobody says anything about my body. Mm-hmm. My family will because that's that's how family works. But like in real life, my friends don't choose me or. Or they don't constantly talk about my weight. Mm. But they do in Hollywood. And so I had like a gap between 18 and like 24 where my body wasn't an issue. And then all of a sudden it was too much of an issue. And literally there's always a conversation about my weight that I actually would prefer not. But there's a conversation like even when the cover of my book was announced on like People magazine or, and they hadn't read the book. They had read nothing about the book at all. But part of the story is that I've always struggle with my weight and in 2009 I told Oprah that I had been and it's like hi it's actually 2017 but you're talking about my weight from 2009 but, but like I gave you this whole ass book but what mm. you're going to do is talk about my body and that's a strange thing where like my body's a part of the conversation the way it wasn't by the time I got to be 18 21 it's weird and it's like hi this is just my body and it's my business what makes you think that mm. you could a police it or b have an opinion about it can i live my yelling (laughs) (laughs) we like yelling we like yelling but yeah the conversation around just thinking about the the first image i saw of you had to be the trailer probably like a super trailer of precious and thinking about the fact that this character's entire presence was about her in her body and how her body was treated by the world i feared for I did not know you, but I feared for you as the actor and the person and having to forever grapple with the conflation of Precious, this star-making character, <laughs> and yourself, Gabourey, which we hadn't even got to know yet. Were you conscious of that before you even came? Very much so. I have known. I've, I've had the, the curse of self-awareness since very young. It was a birth defect. Um, I feel you there. It's it's, it's, it's too much. Uh, oh my god! Mental, what is it? Um, emotional intelligence and self awareness is a gift and a curse. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I've always my name is Gabore Malinga Sidipe, and I live in America, <laughs> and I'm an American. I'm an African American, but I'm American, and so I have always had a hard name to pronounce, and so people always want to. Americanize me more and more and more and make me this thing like oh no 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 Gabourey is too weird you need to be Gabby and so I've always had a push and pull but between who they want me to be who they think I am and who I actually am and who I prefer to be and um, Precious was actually the name of the film was Push, was push originally and when it was going to be changed I begged please don't change please 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 lead in please don't change the name of this movie because then I will lose my name. I will not have this name that I actually hold so dear. I love my name. And I knew I was gonna lose it. 
because it's just easier to say precious and this mm-hmm. and this was also my first acting role and I was just going to be synonymous with this thing that I did when I was 24 you know I will always be 24 in these people's eyes I will always be at that point in my life and the way I combat it was I just no matter if you think you're gonna get precious you're actually gonna get Gabby gonna get cabaret because that's who I am and it was really easy because precious is a very different character than me like the best thing okay so like the first time I was ever like on tv the first ever like talk show I did was the Ellen show mm-hmm. and Ellen that's did, a big one yeah this is my first <laughs> it was my first ever like on camera in front of a an audience interview and Ellen had seen precious the weekend before and she met me, and Katie Kirk was also a guest on the show, and Katie and I had met, and Katie had interviewed me, but it hadn't aired yet, and so she knew who I really was, and she like went to Lehman College where I auditioned for the role and everything, so she saw me, she saw me, not mm-hmm. precious, but me. And Ellen's going on and on about how hard the movie is and how like terrible she felt after and how sad it is. She set me up so good. So like everybody, and they played a a clip and it's when she's like telling the class she's got AIDS, you know, super happy moment. But like, you know, really, really, really heavy moment. And then they say my name and I'm coming out to like a Neo song and I'm like coming out popping and locking just like in that juking and like so what they saw on screen and what Ellen told them I was was completely different than who I actually am all I had it was the easiest job in the world all I had to do is be me I have a different voice than her I have a different Mm -hmm. level of education than her I have a different life than her entirely all I got to do is be me you were shooting in 2008 we shot the end of 2007 and the very beginning of 2008. So I mean, yeah. it was out in 2009, the official mm-hmm. release date. But you kind of, you all did like the festival runs. Yeah. So we were on the, we were on the road for a while. But like when it premiered, the first time I ever saw the film and audi- an audience saw the film was at Sundance. Um, Sundance 2000 and, oh, I guess it was 2009. Yeah. And, um, you know, all these suits, Lionsgate bought the film and, you know, and all these different companies were trying to buy it. And I like would show up at a party and they would say, hello, it is so nice to meet you because they thought that I was slow. And these are film executives. These are film executives who like have education. Like they're smart, (laughs) but like all they know of me is what they saw. All they Mm -hmm. know of me is precious. As a woman Mm -hmm. and as a Mm -hmm. black person, Mm -hmm. you know that what they see of us and what we actually are is very different. Mm -hmm. They'll see an example. They'll see a cartoon of us and assume that that's all of us. Right. Why do I'm asking you, like, why don't we have the allowance and the space to be ourselves and then also express people that are outside of our imaginations or outside of ourselves? We have to struggle and fight and scratch to be visible because we don't have the power behind us as much as as we need. You know, the power that's behind media um, has decided who we are and what we are. And so if we don't match what they decide, that's what they want to put out. Like when... Empire was on and popping and Scandal and Blackish and all these things. Do you remember the articles that were like, so, uh, so many shows of people of color. Is it here to stay? And it's like, hi. (laughs) I, 
as a black woman, as I am the crust of civilization, okay? You came through me, mm. okay? But you've put me so far back there that you don't even remember or want to realize mm. that you came from me. And so I'm a fad to you. But nah, fam, I've been here forever. And so we just don't have that power of visibility um, because they won't give it to us and they, they're refusing to relinquish it. Thank God for this podcast. Thank God for the internet. Thank God for Twitter and YouTube and all of these different ways that you can be visible that we don't need your money. Mm -hmm, we don't need your network. Mm -hmm. We don't need you. We don't need your okay because I'm visible. I am real and I'm going to be out here and I'm going to be sickening and cunt in your face. <laughs> you can come and accept it if you want, but either way, I'm going to do my thing and thank God there are so many alleys where we can do this now. Mm -hmm. There are so many ways to get it done without their approval, but that's what's stopping it. But it's not stopping us. You know, I, I, that's what I love the internet for. I love it for. It's created this way for black people to come forward and tell their own stories and to express themselves and to check mainstream media on stuff that is just crooked and wrong and making us navigate these, um, as Melissa Harris-Perry says, these crooked rooms, right? You have very strategically placed photos within your memoir. And one of my favorite is you... In between impossible standards of beauty, you have Mariah Carey to your right or your left, and then on the other side of you is Paula Patton. The gorgeous Paula Patton. <laughs> Not to say that Mariah ain't <laughs> sickening and gorgeous her damn self. We have these biracial angels next to you, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Could, and I... <laughs> con conventionally attractive, you know, like all of the things that they have, they are celebrated for their beauty they're celebrated for their talent as well but their beauty is you know everything it angered me it was so funny it angered me so much and, and I was just like why did they not give her a glam squad earlier she is the star <laughs> of the film it's like okay so everyone's wearing false eyelashes mm. but me like I didn't know that the steroids mm. were here it's like baseball like <laughs> it's like this weird thing like once you're in it you kind of understand how the mm -hmm. the world works and it's not so much to like stamp down on like your natural style or anything but it was like the resources you know what's funny Precious was my first audition. Do you know that they paid me later than everybody else? I worked for over a month before I got my first paycheck because the way it works when you're doing film and television is you have a manager and an agent mm. and an accountant and the paycheck goes to them and then it gets to you. In the meantime, you already still, you still have money because of the last thing. I had no one making sure I was getting paid so they just didn't know how to do it because you don't hand the actor on set their paycheck. So they just like didn't do it. So the same thing with the glam squad that's all somebody else's business but my only real ally was like lee daniels he's not thinking of makeup and hair and stuff he's just thinking about getting me there mm. so that like i was missing a step by not having representation by not having a previous career so you're like you're in torrid you're buying your own cute outfits you're like i'm looking fly this is what i want to do oh my dress is too short so i'm gonna put some jeans on underneath <laughs> that i'm put on my comfortable cute wedges and like i'm doing it and then you step on the carpet and then are you having a moment Here's the thing, I lean in. At my previous meeting, I'm talking to these people that I don't know and my braid fell out. Mm. <laughs> I have braids in my hair. My braid just slipped out on the floor. I picked it up and put it in my, and I put it in my pocket and I was like, my braid fell out, y'all. I lean into awkwardness. I'll, I'm not gonna pretend that everything is fine. I'm not gonna hide it from you because we all see it. I'm not gonna lie to you. I can't lie to it. I can't do it. So what I did was I just leaned in and I was like, this is my life. <laughs> 
Paula Patton to the left, Mariah Carey to the right, Mar- Mar- Mariah Carey wearing millions of dollars of jewelry is to my right, and they're both sickening and thin with beautiful hair, and they're comfortable in heels, and I am not yet. Mm. But this is where I am, and there's nothing we can do about it. I was like fully wearing Payless shoes. And I, I mean, like, at this point, like, I didn't really consider the blogs. They weren't, like, tearing me apart yet. But they mm-hmm. did. I've never been to Cannes before, but I could see that they were kind of in ball gowns. So I just went to the prom section on Torrid mm-hmm. because what I know of a ball gown is what I know of a prom dress. Like, at that mm-hmm. point, I hadn't, I hadn't been to the Oscars. I hadn't done any of that stuff. I did the best that I could because that's all I could do. And thank God, at that point, you know, uh, Monique, Whenever she was around, she would have her makeup and hair team do me, but she wasn't around for that. And so somebody, I would do it a lot on my own. Mm. And nobody thought enough. No, Like, a lot of people didn't remember to think better for me because usually the lead actress has had <laughs> previous experience with this, and I just didn't. But then eventually, obviously, the Oscar buzz comes around. They know that that's coming. Is that when the infrastructure just kind of swoops in or the manager came in and then you got the stylist? The stylist came through Lionsgate who bought the film. So that's when it started. But like, I remember, I remember, (laughs) oh my God, it was so meager then. I um, had to go to a, oh my God, I haven't even said this word in a while. I went to an internet cafe. (laughs) To get to print something out. Remember those? Because not everybody had a computer and a printer Mm -hmm. in the house. So, like, I went down to the 125th Street Internet Cafe that I'm sure is a press juice place now. Um, Not yet. It's a a press juice place for dogs, specifically. Um, And I, I was printing something out, and I think I was looking, I think I Googled myself, and this is way before, and this is before Sundance, before anything. And... I Googled and I saw that I was on an early list for the Oscar contenders. And I was like, and I called the producer, Lisa Cortez. And I said, Lisa, um, my name is on a list for, for Oscar. What, what do I do? Is this true? And she's like, yeah, that's true. Mm. (laughs) I was like, but what do I, did you do this? And she's like, no, I didn't do that. And I was like, but what do I, she's like, you don't have to do anything. This is just going to, this is happening. But like to explain to the lead actress of your film that like somebody it, other. I mean, like I didn't go to I didn't go to Juilliard or anything. Mm-hmm. I wasn't like I was not seven years old doing my Oscar speech in the mirror. I never I this is a complete surprise mm-hmm. to me. Like I didn't like I write about how like I had no I had no real personal style. I, I, thought I know was good I love I love when you talked about the references. She was like, what do you love in fashion magazines? The, the stylist. And you're like, what? <laughs> but I just love the way that you never. You don't go out and like give us over contextualization of like your personal experiences. Instead, you're just like, why would you even think that I would look at fashion magazines and think that I would want to wear like wear anything I that don't. these people that look nothing like Nobody me. Looks number like one, me. the closest <laughs> thing like the my closest like fashion reference is Kim from Moesha because that girl was dark skin and chunky. Cosmo, Vogue, none of them have ever offered me me until it was me. So I had no I had no point of reference. And what is that like? Because, like, you also came to prominence before we were having all these grand, like, super woke conversations around body diversity and, you know, um, feminism looks so many different ways and Black Lives Matter. Like, Mm. you were coming to prominence 
in an age where Twitter was just starting to pop off. So people yeah, Twitter also Twitter was hardly a thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People were uh, still wilding on Facebook. Yeah, exactly. MySpace is still it, I think. True. Um it's a... <laughs> top eights. But it was before like the Ashley Grahams of the world, before Danielle Brooks, before all of these great people who offered more diversity in terms of body and skin color and hair texture and before the natural Mm -hmm. hair movement became a thing. And so like you come out in this body with this talent in this film that everyone's talking about. And you're also just a young woman, too. Yeah, I was 20. When the film came out, I was 26. I mean, there were think pieces about whether or not I should just be constantly in the gym. Like, how dare I be on TV? I need to be in the gym. I need to I need to apologize for the way my body looks. I need to constantly be talking about how I just want to be healthy or I want to die. Or just, like, I hate myself. I cannot tell you how many interviews I had where they are like, so you seem really confident or... What's that? Where are you? Like, there were things like, do you want to diet? And it's like, do you think I don't know what the fuck I look like? I have a mirror. <laughs> I look at my, I can see what I am. I can see what I am. Or also, like, do you th- think that this is the first time I've existed in this body, yeah. in this world? And don't <laughs> pretend like I don't look like your mama. Mm-hmm. Don't pretend I don't look like your aunties. Don't pretend that I don't belong here, that I don't really exist because I do exist. And yeah, this was before any of that. And I never wanted to talk about my way. I didn't. I don't want to join. I did like, and when all the movement started happening, I didn't want to join the the body acceptance movement because I thought I would be a detriment to it. Because people would comment like, "Oh, she's promoting like a really unhealthy lifestyle, mm-hmm. and she's promoting being fat and beautiful, and that's not true, and that's it's really unhealthy." And it's like I'm promoting a movie. <laughs> I'm promoting a TV show. I'm not telling you what to eat, what not to eat. Mm. Because the honest truth of it is I have had several trainers throughout my life. I have been on every single diet throughout my life. I know what I look like. People pretend that they care about my health by calling me a fat, disgusting bitch. You do not care about my health. You are just a giant gaping asshole. And you think that you can have an opinion about me, but this is my body. I'm not out here in these streets writing think pieces about how your dick's too small. Hmm. Ooh, sorry, I was taken <laughs> over. <laughs> Someone Ooh. else entered the room. <laughs> Woo! She's sorry. left. Gabourey's back. Ooh, hello. (laughs) (laughs) I know you say you were surprised that this became a memoir, that it grew into a memoir. I still read it as both from your original intentionality of having it be these like funny stories. But it's like these funny stories. You as a girl, a black girl, a big black girl, talented black girl in the world that takes up space in so many different capacities, who is grappling with the world, right, but is using humor as a cushion for these things. Slash defense mechanism. Slash defense. (laughs) Well, yes, that's for you to say, right? So slash defense mechanism. But also, it's also graciousness for us who don't want to deal with it as readers. You're enabling us to face ourselves Right. And the harsh truth, because hearing you talk about how you're like these people asking you about your body and you say, don't pretend that I don't look like your mom, your aunts, your grandmothers. Right. The women in your lives that you love, but you push away. Yeah. You know, I write every word of this book and it's about I'm responsible for every exclamation point every period I'm responsible for everything and so I can say this is who I am but just it's human nature when I say this is who I am you still see me through the filter of you Mm. 
which is great. Like if I say I like tomatoes, you talk, you think about how you feel about tomatoes instead of processing what I feel about tomatoes, because that's what life is about. That's how I, you know, be, view people too through my own stuff. Um, but I don't want to tell you you ain't shit. I wrote this book for me and the money, but I wrote this book. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I, swear to God. I mean, I would have given him this book away for $7, <laughs> but I got him for more. But, but I wrote this book because of what it was doing for me in my life. It was, it was helping me to accept the things that I've been through and not just take the negative away, but see the positive. Um, so that's why I say it's, it's by me for me. But I think that there is power in telling your story the same way there was so much power in, in Precious. Like, even though I'm not Precious, I can't tell you how many people from different, entirely different races and walks of life and, and genders and sexualities and all this would and would come to me in ages and say, this is me, a 70-year-old white man, I was Precious. A 13-year-old Asian girl, I am Precious. There is power in, sh in, in sharing hurt. And there's power in sharing humanity. And that's what I'm trying to do in this book. Or that's what I'm not trying to do. I'm really not. I'm just trying to see myself. And so it is wonderful if you can see you. But that's that's really your responsibility. But thinking about how, how you, because I even when I was writing my parents and writing my loved ones, but specifically my parents, I felt like my, you know, my sibling struggles I could not write about because I felt like it was unfair for me to write about their stuff in my book. But I remember like I was like, my parents are fair game. I get to, I'm writing everything the way that I see it. Um, and I've heard someone say that so so beautifully. It was like, it's like the greatest betrayal is to write memories that you've all had together in a sense. And then like your memories, because you're the writer who then has the access to writing a book, becomes the record of history. In this oh, sense. yeah. yeah. Um, when did you know that your parents were more than just your parents, that they had their own relationships with the world. Did you know that very early on growing up? Or did you learn that as you were processing the idea of writing this book? Well, I think learning learning that my dad had any relationships outside of me as his, you know, his there was only two of us. We had a very small family. It was my mm -hmm. mom, my dad, and my brother and I. And we were a family of four. Because when you're eight, you're, um, p parents, what? No, no, no! You, you just got you just you think you're gonna be a woman because what you, what you're not is a woman. You are my mom and nothing more, mm. or you are my dad and nothing more. How dare mm. you? Um, but then the realization that my mom had a life outside of me came a little later um, when I wanted her to. <laughs> you know, when I was like, you know, <clears throat> you know, like kind of like you need to have your own. But like also, my mom has been my mom's like an amazing singer. And is that a you know has a fan base or whatever? Alice Tan Ridley. Yes, mm -hmm. and she and she's like phenomenal singer. And I remember like being with her like you know in the subway like coming home or whatever. And then like somebody some stranger walking up to us and being like, "Hey, when are you singing next?" And I'm like, "Excuse me, like you don't excuse me." <laughs> like that is my mom, and she's nothing more. Um, but like settling that in my psyche and settling that in my emotions and my heart didn't happen until I started writing the book. Mm. Where, like, there's a thing, you know, they tell you as a kid, you know, there'll be hard days and, you know, maybe one day you'll have to, like, take care of your parents. But, like, they don't tell you that your parents are people because you just assume that, like, your first God is your parents. Your first God is your mother. And your, your life first, orbits around them. Yeah. And your first, like, like, my father was my first love. 
in this way that like he was you know and he it's always like when you get married like he was the first man in my life you know and my mom was god I love how you said that you just completely rejected your father telling you that you're going to grow up to be a good Muslim wife. You're I'll like, flip this uh, table. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll flip this table, but you won't do. Like, and I was like, again, like that's a little, you're a little too self-aware, little bummer. I mean, you're a little too self-aware, baby. Just like being six and being like, um, one, I can, I couldn't foresee me being, I mean, like I used to be, I was born Muslim praying. Mm-hmm. Five times a day, like I would, like what I didn't know what I was saying, but like I and I never quite learned it. But I remember thinking, I remember being like, okay, one day I'm gonna learn this. One day, oh, I have this part, Allah, what buck, and then oh, I forget, but then I know this part. Like it's kind of like I remember, like and I, I was kind of looking forward to knowing it, and then I was like, oh, wait a minute, this means that I'm just gonna have to like do whatever you say. And you make all my decisions and I need to cook and I need to do and I have to run everything back past you. I think I had some foresight knowing that like I at least was not going to get married young. I knew that like at some point I would be a full thinking person Mm. before getting married and I could not chance that. Because if because like I guess you're 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 supposed to basically kind of be married to your father until he gives you away. And I was Mm. like, no, no, no. No, 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 I don't trust this. I can't do it. And uh, I read the Quran. I told him I'm not going to be Muslim and I'm not going to do this. I told him that. Um, and honestly, to be to keep it 100 percent funky with you is because my mama ate bacon and I wanted to also. That is the honest to God truth. My mama was in the, like my mama was chilling, eating bacon and living her life happily. And I said, I want some of me. <laughs> I want some of that. God damn it. And my dad's, you can't eat bacon, but you can't don't eat that. You're Muslim. And I was like, well, let me rethink this Muslim thing. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you can't rethink it. You're not you're not old enough. And I was like, Mm-mm, I want to. And he's like, well, then you have to read the Quran. And I was like, bet he didn't think I would. Mm. they never think I will <laughs> but I did and I was like and I was like oh the way this is and I get that's a de- it's definitely like it's a really special amazing thing that has changed so many people those that are Muslim that have mm-hmm. chosen to be Muslim it, it works for them and I knew it like six that it wasn't going to work for me and so I opted out <laughs> and so what is working for you now so my mom was also a gospel singer and so I was privy to Christianity the same way I was to to Islam. Uh, and my mom purposely didn't baptize my brother and I. I think she baptized my brother, but I was the second child, and so I didn't get half of what the first child got. Uh, I think Christians are nothing. I'm just out here sinning. Um, but he, uh, she exposed us to all the religions because she knew that we would have to, she wanted us to be responsible for our own choices. We were to make our own choice. And when I was 19, I became Christian, like going to church, like really up at church, trying to be there every Sunday, you know, tithes and collections. And and eventually I joined the worship team. And uh, this is up in Harlem. No, uh, we went to White Rock Baptist Church, which is in Harlem with my mom. But I went to a church on my own mm. uh, with my best friend and her family in the Bronx. And uh, when I was. Around 26, I decided that an organized religion is not something I want to be a part of because I think that I think that uh, a lot of religions are kind of separatist. 
you know, it's like, well, you're, I remember being at my Christian church and being like, oh, so I auditioned and I went down to, to see a Catholic choir and I just really like it. And so I think I want to sing there. And the pastor was like, no, 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 no. We don't no, 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 not the Catholics. I just think the basis of every religion is to love one another. Mm -hmm. But like the, like it, but like, I feel like being in the church is like love one of these guys love the Christians and like, mm. and if somebody happens to be of another faith, you got to save them from that because we're the right ones. There's too many out here thinking that we're the right. It's just too much. And I just like the basis of every, the basis of what my God wants me to do is to love myself and love my neighbor and to be as good as possible and just, and, and to put goodness and positivity into the world and not negativity. Mm. Good for you. You found what works for you. I'm still. I'm still what looking. What works for me? I, I mean, it, I mean, it works. Well, it would. It's what probably really prompted it is that like um, when I auditioned for Precious, my church told me to not take the role, and then and I was like, well, I'm I'm doing it, and then because I. What were I, their fears about you taking the role? I'm not super sure, but they were like, and I remember asking them to pray for me, and they prayed that that I would see that all that glitters isn't gold. And I was like, I'm sure that this is God, though, because mm -hmm. I prayed that God, I, I mean, like, I didn't pray to be famous. I didn't pray to be mm -hmm. rich. I didn't pray for any of that. I prayed that whatever my path was going to be, that I would be on it. I would pray. I had prayed to, like, begin my life. But they were telling me that I was wrong, that I shouldn't take it. A year and a half later, when the film came out, they told me that Jesus spoke to them and said that uh, I'm supposed to be a millionaire, but I need to take that money. That, but I need to know that that money is not my money. And that they were going to pray that my agents and my managers move so that I become a millionaire so that this wall can move 50 feet back and this wall can move 50 feet back so that they can get more chandeliers in here so they can get a baptism pool. So it was like, but remember mm. when y'all told me that, no? Remember when y'all told me that all the glitters isn't gold, but now you want to use all the money, the money that I actually don't currently have <laughs> like, mm -hmm. to to fund this bill? It just like, and I was like, I see what this is. You are man, you are not God. Mm. And I I would prefer to follow God and not man. I don't need the middleman to get to mm -mm. my God. Yeah, I don't need you to talk to him through me because I'm mm -hmm. talking enough and he's answering. Mm. You know, when I was writing my book, I thought about how I was just sitting there telling myself my own stories because I was for so long trained in order to survive was to like be silent and ashamed of these things and not to speak it. And Audre Lorde has that great quote about like, you know, the only thing more scary than anything would be to not speak it, right, is not speaking. And so when you finally come to that place and you do that and you release it out into the world in the sense you share it with everyone, everyone comes, a lot of people come to you and say that you've helped me do this, you've helped me do that. And I think that what we're all grappling for is not only to be heard, but also I think also to see that we're, we weren't so alone in our pain, you know, talking about growing up poor was something that I know completely. <laughs> growing up poor, growing up, you know, having complicated relationship with parents as we all do, um, battling body image and eating disorders and panic attacks and all of these things. Like you just speaking about it, I can imagine if you're going through that, it makes other people be like, who, someone else said it. And so then maybe I can say it. <sighs> there is so much time wasted in being quiet. It's detrimental. It is dangerous. It is dangerous to lie and it is dangerous to be silent. And I am so scared of money. And that's can someone... we just can we speak it? Can I we speak? Just... Let's talk about class because <laughs> 
that second to the last chapter, I don't want to give it away, but talking about this transition of becoming someone who, you know, born and raised in Bedside, moved to Harlem after your parents split. How have you been able to unpack the money stuff? I'm the middle of five kids. Ooh. And I'm the first to go to college. You know, my brother right after me went to college as well. Um, but we are the quote unquote successful ones. But then I'm I'm the one that often is called when there's an emergency or something's going on or there's a and I feel like no there's like no master class. You're yet. the responsible one. <laughs> there's no master class on becoming the one successful or the one person that's comfortable. Um, who then has to reach back and pull people with you. And so I'm sure that you're grappling with this and I'm, I'm trying to, I'm looking for tips. You know, for me, the one thing that has helped me has been boundaries, like trying to communicate clear boundaries with people. I remember having a conversation, like after I shot my Super Soul Sunday with Oprah, she goes, she's told me this story of like how she, I'm very sure she told me the same thing, but go on. (laughs) (laughs) What was the story she told you? She told me, she was like, listen, whatever it is that you have, they want some of it. Like if she's like, when I was making $100, they needed about 50. When I was making $1,000, they needed 500. When I was making a million dollars, they needed 500. You know, like it's Mm -hmm. that whole thing Mm -hmm. of like, she's like, you can handicap them, but you just, you have to be the one to decide what you will give. Mm -hmm. And if it's more than, if they want more than that, you've decided what they will get, what you've decided. The thing is they will get it. They will get they will figure it out. Like who I mean, what do you mean you need twenty thousand damn dollars? Who are you? Did you lose a drug deal? Like what is happening? Like you don't need that. Like you just you want that. But like you wouldn't come to me if I were a teacher. You wouldn't come to me if I were a receptionist. But there's a whole other thing of like, you know, especially like in the black community or in the um families of color, you know, wealth doesn't run down Mm-mm. the way it does in white people like it doesn't I couldn't figure out I don't like saying Caucasian it's offensive yeah (laughs) but like the way it works with white people is wealth goes down Mm -hmm. I make a lot of money and I make money and then my children will be taken care of and they will make Make money money. and they will be like the way it runs every generation does much better than the last Mm -hmm. you're you're speaking about money like that's something that I'm all I'm here I'm like you know people can't see me but I'm like readjusting myself in the chair because that's (laughs) how uncomfortable I am I'd be like, girl, my leg is all up on the table now. Just like, I'm. (laughs) But, you know, the conversation that, you know, we had a mutual conversation with Oprah, basically, and she gave the same tools. The tools were, you know, set these boundaries now because people will ask what they believe that you can give. My episode with Oprah on Super Soul Sunday re-aired just a couple months ago. I had an uncle who got my phone number and called me and I was like, I have not talked got to your you phone number since I was 12 it. years old. And you're like <laughs> trying to spark a conversation with me about, you know, you got to help your uncle out. Your uncle needs you. Your uncle has these big ideas, that he, but he just needs the right people around him to help him get this idea off the ground. And you need to help your uncle. You need to help your, Janet, you need to help your uncle. Okay, so I... <laughs> Gabourey is readjusting in Ooh. her chair. I say this all the time, and it's going to sound horrible for the, I feel like you and I understand this, and anybody else mm-hmm. that you know has been blessed enough to get the to get the um, advice from Oprah about what you're gonna give. <laughs> I hate somebody with dreams, and I know that that sounds insane. 
but I hate people with dreams <laughs> that think that I have something to do with those dreams. <laughs> I don't have, that's not my, your dream is to have my money. I have family members that are offended that it happened for me and not mm. for them. It's just like, you know that I've been, you know that I was raised and scraping through mud and just like, mm. you know my life has been mm. really, really hard and you can't celebrate it with me because you're so offended that I have it. I'm not rich, but my family thinks, anybody looking that doesn't know what yep. it's like to actually, because the thing is like, this is your show. These are, you're a writer and you're, you have amazing books, but you need to do that for the rest of your life, hun. Mm -hmm. You need to do that for the rest of your life. You got to be this successful mm -hmm. because honest, anybody that you've ever given a dollar to will not be there. If your mortgage payment is late, if your rent is late, I can't tell you how many times I paid my parents rent before me. And if I ever goddamn needed anything that's not where to go you don't have the security blanket i don't have as yeah this is and this and the thing is like my life will be long mm. i have the next five months i don't have month six i don't know what i'm gonna do if something doesn't happen month six if i break my legs and i never work again what am i gonna do mm. i don't know are you going to be able to help me mm. no you're not you know like i mm -hmm. my job is to make you like me what if I run out of that and I never get another role again? I can't go work down at the McDonald's. I can't go work at the Starbucks. Am I ever going to be a doctor? Probably not. I need to be. I need to be working with my face and my body forever. My fi my family does not have the the detriment of my career and my face. I'm stuck here. You know what I mean? I'm stuck mm -hmm. here. Imagine I became an accountant. It's like, uh, remember when you were like nominated for the Oscar? That's so weird. Now you're an accountant. That's weird. I mean, I could do that. Yeah, I could deal with can. that. That's an emotional thing to deal with. But like, I don't want to. I want to be here forever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just like mm -hmm. now that I have it, I want it. But you've, you're healthy in the sense that you've set those boundaries. Mm -hmm. For like now. <laughs> for now I mean I get I mean I get very when they ask me for money I'm so mad when they don't ask me for money and need it I'm mad mm. either way it's just so uncomfortable it's so money is so uncomfortable to have it was don't get it messed up oh it really sucked to not have it it was much more uncomfortable to not have it but having it isn't is somehow not easier in this long road that you have ahead, what are you, what are you hoping to do with your career? You've moved to directing. You've created a short film. You did off of a Nina Simone song yes. with your best friend Kia. Yes, my best friend Kia, my producing partner, who it was actually her idea. Uh, so. Yeah, I directed an, an adaptation of a Nina Simone song called the um, called Four Women. And our film is called The Tale of Four. It's our way of loving Nina Simone and loving who she was and what she represented and and who she wanted to be. She was an activist. She was a you know she was a fighter. She was a strong woman. She had me mental health issues and she was an artist. And we just wanted to to tell her story without you know doing the Nina Simone film. Mm. So what's next? I am finding my footing and I'm finding my grace and my purpose in being a writer. Mm -hmm. 
And if this book isn't on any list and if it doesn't, you know, sell or whatever it is, I found what I wanted in myself and in my career. And I am so ecstatic and I cannot wait to write more and I cannot wait to direct more and I cannot wait to create my own shows and television and and my movies and all of that I want to create. Mm -hmm. And I will do that for the rest of my life. Whether or not I will do it comfortably is not up to me, but I will I will do it because I have, whether I want to admit it or not, I have the heart and the training of an artist. My mother is an artist and I ran from it for a long time, but wherever you go, there you are. I feel like that was beautiful. I don't know if I have any, I feel like a drop the mic moment. (laughs) Gabare Sidibe, thank you so much for sharing yourself and for giving us access directly to your thoughts with your book, This Is Just My Face. So Thank honored. You. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, are we done doing that? Like, okay, I hate, I hate doing that ender. It's always like the worst thing in the world, and this will probably end up being the new ender. What I'm just saying right now. Uh, <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> Go ahead, Janet. <laughs> Never Before is a product of Pineapple Street Media and Lenny Letter. It was produced by Jenna Weiss-Berman, Ricky Novetsky, Josh Gwynn, Liz Watson, and Barry Finkel. Our executive producer is Lena Dunham. Special thanks to Max Linsky and Ben Cooley. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. Now here's Lena Dunham to give you a little hint about next week's guest. Iconic, radical, trickster with a heart of gold. If you like our show, please subscribe and rate it on iTunes. It helps more people find out about our show. So please go do it.